Cinephile. Nicholas Cage. Very sincere group of film enthusiasts who are proudly cinephiles. Oh my goodness! Warren Beatty apparently read the wrong name. This is incredible. Moonlight won Best Picture. Cinephile. Ethan Hawke. It's kind of like I'm a professional actor and I direct for love. There's so much in this world that's dividing us. And music is one of those great tools that brings us together. All right. There's baseball and World War II. It's kind of <laughs> a dream. Cinephile. The Adnan Verk Movie Podcast. All right. Yes. Why wasn't I still recording? That would have been gold. Could have run that as the open. open. As always, a thrill to have you here on Cinephile. Check out the podcast, the Instagram app, iTunes. You know all about them. Please do give us some love on iTunes, where I rank my movies out of four police, but you can rank us out of five stars. Leave a comment as well. Rate and review. That's how we get this thing done. Call this actor's duet sentimental and simplistic at your own peril. Green Book may well move you possibly to tears as the thought of real social change and kindness at a time when we need it badly. That is from Joshua Rothkopf of Time Out. A very good explanation of the film Green Book, which I'll be reviewing. It's one of my favorite movies of the year. So there goes your spoiler alert. But I think it's a very polarizing movie. It's going to get a lot of blowback from some quarters. So I really cannot wait to see what people think of Green Book. And I cannot wait to tell you all about it. Screeners have been unbelievable. Seriously, of all the great things Ben Lyons has done for me, getting me into the BFCA may be number one. Broadcast Film Critics Association. I got screeners coming galore. So today we are going to be reviewing Green Book, The Front Runner, Widows, Vice, Ralph Breaks the Internet, Bohemian Rhapsody, and Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Seven films. We'll try to do so as expeditiously as possible. When Dan starts to nod off, it looks like he's losing interest. I promise I'll move on. I can already tell you, Scruggs and Ralph will be quick. I think we want to dive into Vice. Although I thought of me, part of me says maybe I shouldn't go too much into Vice because it hasn't opened yet. It'll be opening Christmas Day. But honestly, this is how we do things here. Who knows when the next podcast could be. Rather than wait to review Vice on the next podcast, Dan's going to be taking vacation. I'm going to be on the road, college football. Let's just go ahead and give people an early review, right? That's how we do things around here. Uh, before we get into the matters of the day, quick Golden Globes recap. Real miss for First Man, which is unfortunate. Me and Dan both love the film. Passmore, have you seen it yet or no? First Man? I have not seen it I have yet. not seen okay. it. So Dan and I really love it. I think in, in out of the years, it would be one of the best movies of the year. But unfortunately, ignored for all the major categories. Gosling ignored. Damien Chazelle ignored. But in case you're wondering, you got Oscar bouts, et cetera. How important are the Golden Globes? They're not that important. Only 65% of the time has a Best Picture Academy Award also been nominated for a Golden Globe Best Picture. 65% of the time. So when A Star is Born is going to win Best Drama and Green Book is going to win Best Comedy or Musical, do not all of a sudden say to yourselves, those movies are going to win. Because Roma was not nominated for Best Picture by the Globes, and yet every Critics' Choice Award has got that very high in the list. Never before has a black and white and a subtitle film won Best Picture. But you ask people who have seen this movie, they adore it, and... Passport said to me earlier he thinks Spike's going to win Best Director. I don't think so. I hope so. But Alfonso Cuaron, I think, is going to win for Roma. I was talking to my gold everybody's, and I go, it is a slam dunk. He already won an Oscar for Gravity. Although I'd love to see Spike get nominated like a Lifetime Achievement Award, but they're saying Cuaron's going to win for Roma. So don't worry too much about the Globes. Although, if you're really excited about the Oscars, yeah, A Star is Boring Green Book, they are definitely going to be major contenders. But the favorite just got nominated for a ton. So I'm a part of the BFCA, uh, Broadcast Film Critics Association. So I had to submit my ballot and go through all these nominees. I don't know if I'm going to be able to make the trip out there. January 13th, it's in L.A. I asked Lines. I said, should I, you know, I'm paying my, my money here. Should I fly there, go on the red carpet, get some interviews? Lines goes, if you get red carpet access, I would recommend doing it because you'll get the people you like, i.e. Ethan Hawke will be there promoting First Reformed. You know, you'll get the smaller, you're not going to get, not that he's a small actor, you know what I'm saying, smaller films. Um, 
So maybe I'll go out there. Here's the nominees, just real quick. The favorite, which I reviewed last time, 14 nominations. Good God. Best picture, best actress, uh, best actress in a comedy, best supporting actress for Emma Stone, Rachel Weisz, and so on and so forth. Black Panther, 12 nominations. Could that win best picture? Well, the, the, what really hurts is that you've got to have at least one actor nominated. Oh, lo and behold, Michael B. Jordan is up for supporting actors. So if he can squeeze into the Oscar race, get nominated, you have a better chance. What do the critics think versus the Globes? Again, the Globes are more populist. I'm not hating. I'm just telling you they're going to go with the big, fluffy movie. Dan and I, critics, First Man, 10 nominations. Uh, Star is Born, Vice, 9 nominations. Roma, 8 nominations. Green Book, 7. So it's different when you go with the critics versus what the Globes say. And, of course, the award I was most upset about, Ethan Hawke was snubbed by the Globes. He is up for Best Actor, the Critics' Choice, and he's on a run right now. He won the New York Film Critics Award Best Actor. He just won the L.A. Film Critics Best Actor. As uh, my friends at Gold Derby said, if he can get on a run and win all these Critics Awards, and then, of course, what's the biggest precursor to who wins the acting? It's the Screen Actors Guild Awards, the SAGs. So if Hawk wins the SAG over Bradley Cooper, then all of a sudden we get a real race on our hands. Speaking of races... One can always shoot one in the foot, and I adore Paul Schrader. Everybody knows this podcast and knows me knows how much I love him. He won Best Original Screenplay from the New York Film Critics. He's nominated for the Critics' Choice, was snubbed by the Globes. The heck with the Globes. But he's making too many comments. Paul, stop talking. You're going to kill yourself. You're 72 years old. You've been nominated twice for an Academy Award. Taxi Driver in 76, Raging Bull in 1980. People love this film that have seen it, with the exception of Dan Stanzik. He will give his review later in the podcast. But, Rick, what are the comments Schrader has made specifically? Okay, I'll read this here. Okay, here's what he said. He's going to stop talking. Here's the first comment he made. I was sent a script yesterday, a very, very, very good script. We screamed Kevin Spacey for the lead. I told the producer I'd direct it if they would make it with Kevin. The producer responded that was not possible. I believe there are crimes in life, but no crimes in art. Spacey should be punished for any crimes his actual person created, but not for art. All art is a crime. Punishing him as an artist only diminishes art. Put Celine in jail, put Pound in jail, punish Wilde and Bruce if you must, but do not censor their art. So immediately I'm like, I don't necessarily argue with him, but I'm like, you can't make these. Listen, Kevin Spacey saying that name aloud. Poison. And then said this, somebody asked him about being of the 70s films with Marty and Coppola and Spielberg and Lucas. And why is it different? There are people who talk about American cinema of the 70s as some halcyon period. It was to a degree, but not because there are any more talented filmmakers. Okay, so far. There's probably, in fact, more talented filmmakers today than there was in the 70s. Well, that's fine. What there was in the 70s was better audiences. Oh, no. A lot of what was happening was the world uh, had people in consternation. Women's rights, gay rights, sexual liberation, drug liberation, anti-war. All of these things were rolling on top of each other, and people were turning to the arts, specifically movies, for what we should do about this. Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice about wife swapping, coming homes about Vietnam veterans, an unmarried woman, female liberation. So almost one a week, films are coming out to address these things that were on people's minds. When people take movies seriously, it's very easy to make a serious movie. When they don't take it seriously, it's very, very hard. We now have audiences that don't take movies seriously, so it's hard to make a movie serious for them. It's not that versus filmmakers are letting you down. It's the audiences letting you down. Paul, stop! <laughs> stop talking! They're going to give you an Oscar for first reform. You keep insulting people. Granted, the audience isn't voting for the Oscars, but people in the Academy are going to go, wow, who's this arrogant SOB? He's not winning an Academy Award. Passmore, he's not entirely wrong, though, is he? No, he's not. Uh, most audiences now, like in this climate today, 
we're not going to films to be challenged. We're going to films to be solely entertained. Right. So something like A Star is Born, which is getting rave reviews, and rightfully so because it is a fantastic film, is the high up because it really doesn't challenge us deep. It's just an entertaining film that has a lot of emotion riding behind it, where something like First Reform is really attacking social issues, spiritual issues, which I haven't seen yet, but from reading and it, right. uh, reviews and whatnot. So, yeah, like he's not wrong, but to to quote uh, the Big Lebowski, to quote the dude, you're not wrong, you're just an a-hole. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, that's just like your opinion, man. Dan, if you were his PR camp, if you were Ethan Hawke, would you call Paul Schrader and go, hey, man, this is a small movie. We're trying to get people to see this film. Well, that's the hard part. You want him out there so people see the film. You want him to be promoting it. But you got to tell him to shut up. You can't be saying this. Even if he's 100% right with everything he's saying, you just can't say it. It sucks. The spacey stuff definitely you can't touch. Do you well, think- you know where I am with the spacey stuff. He right. is toxic right now, and you can't put him in a movie. But I'm a big believer that you should separate the art from the artist. Everyone that glorifies sports, and we work in sports, these athletes are not nice people. Right. They are mainly deranged and do bad things and are a little off-kilter most of the time. Right. But we celebrate their greatness at the field that they in the art that they've chosen. Right. And it's odd because now the Oscars are choosing to draw this line in the sand, but past history would indicate they also would make that distinction. Roman Polanski won Best Director for The Pianist ahead of Scorsese for Gangs of New York. Woody Allen has won multiple Academy Awards. Now it's like, hey, hey, you know what? Things no, things have changed specifically with the Me Too movement, and, yes. and they have changed for the better, and rightfully so. Right. So th- that whole narrative kind of has shifted. All right, so we'll see what happens with regards to Paul Schrader and his quest to win an Academy Award, which I would obviously be thrilled with. And again, Critics' Choice Awards, maybe I'll be there on the red carpet. We'll find out. January 13th is when it takes place. Uh, you can follow on Twitter and Instagram, and I'll be watching the Globes as well. But again, if you're one of those people who bets on the Oscars, do not think the Globes. I'll give you more numbers. The best actor of the Golden Globe, 75% of the time, wins the Academy Award. Now, there's two categories, comedy and musical and drama. So even if Bradley Cooper doesn't win best actor... Uh, the more telling consequence is the Screen Actors Guild Award. So, yeah, a passport's called it. So, Robbie Mollick, this is a big hit. Bohemian Rhapsody, the Globes loves these big, splashy movies. He might win Best Actor of the Globes. That does not necessarily mean he's going to win Best Actor um, at the Oscars. And Robert Redford, listen, I love Redford, but that was just a token nomination. Best Actor in a Musical or a Comedy. It's a heist movie. It's neither a musical or a comedy. What the hell? We'll get Bob Redford out there. He'll show up. He'll shake hands. Lin-Manuel Miranda, Mary Poppins Returns. I'll have a review of that film coming up on the next podcast. Let's do some reviews, though. Green Book is a movie starring a couple of our favorites, Viggo Mortensen and Mahershala Ali. And it won the Audience Award at the Toronto International Film Festival, which, speaking of good signs, uh, movies in the past that have won that, uh, King's Speech won the Audience Award, American Beauty won the Audience Award. It really kicks off the Oscar season. You know, Canada's way back in May. Generally, the TIFF, which just takes place in September, if you win an audience award, there you go. All right, we got some mojo. So once Green Book won, I was like, oh, man, Oscar race is on. So I knew it had gotten good reviews, but I think it's going to be a very polarizing film. Here's the story in case you're unclear. Viggo Mortensen plays a guy named Tony Lip, heavy Italian-American caricature, tough guy, works in a club, bit of a bouncer, uh, needs a little bit of money because the club's shutting down, gets an offer to drive Mahershala Ali's character, who is a world-renowned concert pianist. The job is drive for two months and drive this guy through the deep south. And as Mahershala's character says to Vigo, I asked around about you. I know that you're not just a driver. You can handle yourself. I'm a black guy. It's 1962. I could use some help, etc. Vigo thinks about it, but doesn't like when, when the contrapianist says to him, one of the jobs is to shine my shoes. Because I'm not shining anybody's shoes. I'm not doing that stuff. You want me to drive? You want me to take care of some stuff with you? Some tough guys. That's one thing. But I'm not going to do it. So he leaves. But then afterwards, Don Shirley, played by Mahershala, calls his wife. Small role, but I really like Linda Cardellini in the movie. She's always been really good. And she says the reason he's calling is he wants to know, would it be okay 
if I, if I could take, if he could take my husband away for two months, very classy gesture because he's got small kids. So now we have our prototypical road movie and we've got a buddy movie because now these two guys have to get to know each other. And we find out very early on that Vigo's character, Tony Lip, is racist because a couple of black guys are over at the house helping out. And after they leave, he takes their two drinking glasses they had and puts in the garbage. So you already know you've got this xenophobic racist character and you've got this very world renowned contrapenist who happens to be African American. And now the story goes. So it is uh, formulaic. I think it is predictable. But thankfully, it is not nearly as mawkish as I thought it might be. I knew it was going to be sentimental, but I was fearful of that. But I think it actually handles the subject matter really beautifully. And I listen, it's playing notes that have been played before. But if you want to go old school, every story has always been told. It's how you tell the story. And I think it's a beautifully told story. And I give full credit to Peter Fairley of the Fairley Brothers fame. This is a guy who did Dumb and Dumber, and there's something about Mary, now working without his brother Bobby, who unfortunately is dealing with a tragedy. His 20-year-old son passed away a few years ago, so Bobby stepped away from filmmaking. So Peter directed this. He co-wrote it. It's primarily a film that's taking place in a car, and then they have adventures. They go play concerts, and they learn about each other, and I don't want to give away too much of the story, but there's some surprises along the way. It's a lot funnier than I would have thought. Vigo's got a half a dozen laugh-out-loud lines and his character is the one that has to change. He's the big lout, uh, especially when you see Eastern Promises. He's so good as a gangster. He's tough and lean. Here he's fat. He's drinking. He doesn't care. He's got the big accent, very typical New Yorker. And Mahershala's character is very rigid and controlled and proper and has excellent diction. And he's very smart and articulate. But his character is lonely as well. One of the best scenes of the movie, you know, Hearst gets upset and he says, listen, because Vigo's character is pointing out, listen, even though I'm lower class, and I'm white. I'm more in closer with your people than, than you are. I know who, you know, I know, I know who these artists of the day are. I know who Sam Cook is. You don't know any of that stuff. You're this elitist contrapenist. I'm part of the working class. You know what I mean? And as Marissa's character says, listen, I'm not black enough because of what you're describing. I'm not white enough because of the color of my skin and I'm not man enough. So who am I? So what I thought of when I watched this movie was the Shawshank Redemption. The Shawshank Redemption was a huge bomb at the time, right, in box office. Ended up getting nominated by the Oscars, seven awards, ended up nominated for Best Picture. Didn't win, of course, the atrocity that is Forrest Gump. But years later, discovered on cable and on DVD, and people adore that movie. Shawshank Redemption, if you ask the average person, most who are of our age say it's a top ten movie of their lifetime. People love that movie. And why do they love that movie so much? It's not just that it's a black character, it's a white character. It's not just that it's a beautifully told story. It's not that it's sentimental without being mawkish. It's about what? Male friendship. It's about friendship. And I said, that's why I think Green Book is getting such rave reviews, because what this movie is about is overcoming intolerance. And it does so without being particularly preachy, but it's about friendship. And it's about these two guys making a connection. Now, I thought it was fantastic. I'm giving it three and a half Maple Leafs. But I do think it's going to be polarizing because already you're getting a movement from some African-American audiences are saying, really? Driving Miss, this is a reverse driving Miss Daisy. Rather than the black driver, you've got a white driver and you've got, you know, a black guy in the back rather than Jessica Tandy. Like, what are we doing here? So I think that there's definitely going to be a feel that this is a sanitized look at race relations, that this is not what was happening in 1962. This is a rare example of of two people getting along. In fact, it was much uglier, much filthier. There was much more vehement behavior going on. And you should reward a film that's more um, true to its time. In that case, then Black Klansman will be helped because that's a very vicious movie. And it it very much shows what's happening uh, through Spike Lee's lens. So I'm curious to see what happens with Green Book, but honestly, you can't make judgments of what other people are going to think. I watched the movie. I thought it was terrific. I can't wait to watch it again. I wanted to watch it with my mom. I thought it was a really sweet, well-told movie. So you mentioned how there's some laugh-out-loud moments with Viggo Mortensen. It's also directed by Peter Farrelly, as you mentioned. If you had to pick one, is it more of a comedy or more of a drama? 
I'm going to say it's more of a comedy. It's just, it definitely has some sweet moments that are dramatic, but, you know, I think it honestly is a comedy because it's really, there's a lot of humor. It's not slapstick, obviously, like the Fairleys are known for, but I actually think it's more comedic. And that's why the Globes actually give them the credit. It's nominated for Best Comedy or Musical, which I think is correct. And A Star is Born Under Drama, which is a dramatic film. So that's Green Book. I'm giving it three and a half Maple Leafs. I encourage people to check it out. Hopefully we'll try to get Marissa Ali uh, on the podcast at some point. Let's fly through some more. The Front Runner, I'll make this one quick. Hugh Jackman is an actor I think has a lot of charisma. He's awfully likable. You know, he's a real song and dance man, very magnetic personality. Playing Gary Hart in this movie, I'm amazed that Gary Hart even had a chance to run for president. His character is so dour and so drab. And as Mark Simon said, his haircut makes him look like Dudley Moore. I mean, you take an actor who has such vitality and he's just robbed of it. He just comes this guy who's a real stick in the mud. And the story's about when his affair was publicly disclosed. And Jason Reitman, who's a very good director, up in the air in the past, one of his major films, he wanted to make this film because he said, this is when the world changed. This is when a person's personal life became public. In the past, and one of the characters says this, J.K. Simmons, always reliably good. He has a small supporting role. He says, in the past, we know what Jack was doing, John F. Kennedy. We knew what other guys were doing, Martin Luther King, et cetera. And he goes, but the audience didn't care. And now, all of a sudden, it shifted. And Reitman makes the case, I don't know if it's Zach or not, Dan can point to it, that this is when a person's private life started to become a part of the presidential campaign. And this American senator, who had a good chance of getting the nomination for the, the Democratic seat, ended up being derailed by this. And, you know, Jackman has this constant refrain of, like, it's nobody's business, nobody's business. He's not really denying it when the media tries to attack him on it. Who's this woman? Why was she seen with you? What's your relationship with your wife? He he seems to think the old school will work. It's none of your business. Let's move on. Let's talk policies. But, of course, the world changed. So I think the movie is, is fairly paint by numbers. I'm going to give it two Maple Leafs. Like I said, Jackman's a character who's so charismatic, he's robbed of that. The story kind of gives you that, which is he's having an affair, but then doesn't surprise or challenge you. In terms of political thrillers, I'd much recommend The Ides of March, the George Clooney, Ryan Gosling film. I think Dan should see it just because of his uh, political bent, but I, I think you'll agree with me that it isn't a story that particularly needed to be told. Who Who is clamoring for a Gary Hart movie? Not many people. I did read the book, which is weird. Uh, there's a picture of him on a boat with the girl, right? That's yeah. something that... Um, so it's almost like you're wasting Hugh Jackman's talent, is what I'm hearing. But yeah. for when it started, I always pointed to Clinton in '98, and my my demarcation 92? line '98 with 98. Lewinsky. Oh, Lewinsky, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, my my line of demarcation was always Michael Jordan was fawned after by yeah. the media. Kobe Bryant comes along, and his infidelities. I mean, yeah, there was a sexual assault allegation involved. Um, but he was much maligned for the things he did off the court, and Michael Jordan was praised and fawned after. So I saw it as '98. But looking back, this is certainly when it changed in politics. So you, you, listen, you're too young. You don't remember the Gary Hart when it was. I happening. don't remember it when I was. I mean, what year did it happen? Eighty-eight. I was two years yeah. old. Yeah. But Mark Stanzik, your dad's a politician, but he know well the Gary Hart. Story. Oh yeah. He'd be like, oh yeah. man, they, they took that guy down. Yeah. Your dad a Gary Hart fan? Probably. My, I mean, my dad. He'll tell you all the guys that were going to be president and then weren't. And like yeah. he was like Elliot Spitzer. He's going to be the next president. And that, that fell apart. <laughs> Interesting. We'll get Mark on maybe sometime as a guest cameo. Give his thoughts. He's going to watch the front room over the holidays. He'll come on with a guest review in January. Moving on. I'll make this other one quick. Bow to Buster Scruggs. Say this for the Cone brothers. And my brother Zeeshan is listening. He's going to start clapping and applauding. And Dan Stanzik will start applauding. I think they're brilliant. But when they whiff, they whiff badly. Like when these guys miss, I'm telling you, intolerable cruelty. Like <laughs> they make some bad movies. Hail Caesar. These guys are geniuses. Barton Fink and Fargo and... So many movies are so good. No Country for Old Men, obviously. I love Miller's Crossing. I love Barton Fink. But like when they're bad, it's like, God, what are you guys doing? <laughs> Which I remember Roger Ebert once said that he loves Danny DeVito. Ebert did. 
and he said death to Smoochie, which was his worst movie of the year. He goes, it takes really talented people to make terrible movies because they have such grand ambitions. So when they succeed, they have the courage to make these leaps of faith. But when they fail, they're just so erratically off. It's not just you missed slightly. Like, no, you missed badly. It's awful. And that's what this movie is. It's a six stories told separately in an anthology currently available on Netflix, so readily available for people who want to check it out. And it's six stories which are not connected. The first story is funny. Uh, Tim Blake Nelson is in it, who's a cone regular. The fifth story, I think, is good. It's poignant. Uh, but the rest of it, I thought, was a real mess. I know Lem is going to be upset because he loves uh, Tom Waits. But I thought it was a real waste of talent. And these guys, they love the Wild Wild West. They love stories from there. And a couple of the stories are quirky. But honestly, it just it felt like a waste of my time. And it felt like if any of these stories were actually good, then they should have just made that story into a movie rather than six disparate stories. This is also an issue I find with anthologies. Like I like short stories, but the problem is whenever you read a book of short stories, like 10 of them, naturally, three are good, three are okay, and then four are a waste of my time. So like I never understand. If I'm reading a book, I'm just going to enjoy the book. Short stories, are going, eh, that worked, that didn't work. But I guess that's part of the appeal of it. But in this case, I really didn't care for it. Either of you watched Battle of Buster Scruggs? Yeah, I actually just watched it uh, yesterday before coming into work, and I... I kind of disagree with you on like the overall atrocity that you're putting it out to be. I'm giving it one and I, a half maple leaves. I give it, I give it two and a half. Wow. Uh, just because it's, it is a t- big tonal shift from story to story, but each one does convey their own Coen brothers whimsy that does exist throughout all their films. Even in the darker stuff like No Country for Old Men and Blunt right. Sipple, there's dark comedy elements within those films and they're, but they're heavy on the dark. And that's what you have in a couple of the stories. Then you have like the the opening ballad of Buster Scrubs that is just pure it's it's pure comedy right it's pure straight up comedy with the touch of violence well not really a touch but no, no when he shoots it, the guy that's yeah. probably the funniest and, moment and of the entire the, thing yeah the, the incident Slams with the Clancy table. Brown is is brilliant in my opinion yeah uh but yeah it but it's hard because you get set in something and you kind of like it and then they pull you away because it's over the and the second story with James Franco but each one has their own little uh edge to it that only the Coen brothers can really uh, can really pull off and make entertaining, even if it is only about 16 minutes long or 20 minutes long each. So I was really digging into what they were telling with those stories, not just the narrative themselves, but the overlying arc of like what's happening in that era and what kind of things are going on. Plus very, there's a lot of very social and spiritual things, you know, back to that terminology that are going on within that, especially the final uh, the final story that they were that they uh, told, right. which I thought was absolutely fantastic in the way they went about it. So I, I'm not as I'm not as sour on it as you are. I actually just, I did see a lot of the whimsy, but it was a very big shift between story to story. The Liam Neeson story was heartbreaking to me. Yeah. Um, but that's just that. But that's I think it's the Coen brothers just doing an exercise in anthology and like how can we tell these stories that probably deserve more time. And especially with a character like Buster Scruggs, I would have loved to have seen an entire right. film of him. If that had just been him. a 90-minute comedy, I'm like, okay, fine. But maybe, like, it's just, for them, it's an experiment in, in anthology and tone setting and, and how to tell a short story. And, you know, I don't think they f- completely failed like you seem to think they did. But at the same time, that's just my opinion, man. <laughs> I, when I tweeted the review, which, of course, Rick always tweets, make sure you follow Cinephile at ESPN. Very much a mix. There were some that said, no, you're being way too hard. You missed the market. A lot of people said, well, I think you're right. It did suck. So you're right. It's definitely open to interpretation. Ralph breaks in out. Do this one quick. Three minute beliefs. Entertaining. If you like the first one, you like the second one. The, the princesses are fantastic. They deserve their own spinoff. You know, Disney's taken so much heat 
over the years, and I would say valid, uh, the depiction of uh, women over the years of some of the, uh, especially the old school animation. But one of the funny sequences of the movie is when Penelope is locked in with all these famous princesses. You know, you got Elsa, you've got Princess Jasmine, still fetching as ever. It's a really funny scene, and that's one of the quirkier parts. Ending is also very original. It's a little disturbing as he's just fighting a tower of insecurity, but I thought it was really funny and very clever. I'm giving it Three Maple Leafs, a sequel that is worthwhile. Uh, speaking of animation, surprise, Paddington 2 was snubbed by the Globe. It's one of my better uh, kids' movies of the year. Thankfully, Ralph Bix Internet, I think, will get nominated for an Academy Award for Animated Film. Doing great box office, as always. So if you like the original, you'll enjoy the sequel as well. Lots of jokes for millennials. Lots of jokes about pop-up blockers and what the Internet superhighway is. The story is that Ralph and Penelope are locked inside the Internet. So it's a very interesting concept, very highbrow, uh, but I did enjoy it. Three of police for that one. Bohemian Rhapsody. Rami Malek, uh, that was fantastic. Preens, struts all over the place. I don't know a ton about Freddie Mercury. Kind of, it almost seemed to be like Mick Jagger. Like he's just, he's a real peacock up there on stage. Really owns the screen, very flamboyant, uh, egotistical. And I thought he was terrific. I have never seen iRobot, but I'm aware of the reviews. I'm aware he's supposed to be a very good actor. Um, Mr. Robot. Mr. Robot, excuse me, Mr. Robot. I wrote the Will Smith movie. I'm aware of that one. Ben Lyons loves it. So Bohemian Rhapsody, I'm going to give it two Maple Leafs, two, two and a half Maple Leafs, I'll give it, because I think it's fairly standard biopic fare. I thought Passport did a good job of explaining it previously on Cinephile. If you like Queen, you may be upset by it because of the way that they take some stories out of sequence and they take some liberties with the story, particularly the ending. If you don't know much about Queen, which would be me, I enjoyed it because uh, the concert scenes were really well done. The last 20 minutes are excellent, the whole Live Aid concert. And as I said, Moloch is very good. But as far as the story, I didn't learn a ton too much about Freddie Mercury. And as far as standard biopics are concerned, it's the familiar beats, uh, estranged from his family, uh, tough to find love, sexual orientation he's not sure about, experiments with drugs and alcohol, break up with the band, gets back together with the band, like all the stuff you kind of seen before. So there wasn't too many surprises. But I thought, Ricky, I thought you nailed the general arc of it. If you're a big Queen fan, you might get upset by it. But the concert scenes are great. And Mike Myers, an excellent cameo, especially if you know Wayne's World. Yeah, just it, it, the biggest flaw with it is just factually inaccurate from the hallway down. But that's because Brian May and um, the drummer, whose name is eluding me right at this moment, uh, they had executive producer control and really didn't want to uh, explore some of the factualities and really make a Hollywood type movie. Right. So, all right, a couple more to go. How are we doing on time, Danny? Not bad, right? Chugging along here. Did we skip Vice just for the well, record we're, we're for housekeeping? For we're we're building need, up I, to Vice. I need you locked into Vice. Okay, I'll so we'll get Widows out of the way as well. I'm giving that one two Maple Leafs. Another dis. How about Verka? Right, Lem will never call me Easy A again. I'm crushing things left. Coen Brothers one and a half. I gave Bohemian Rhapsody two and a half. I gave the front runner two, and I'm giving Widows two. Steve McQueen's a great director. Twelve Years a Slave won the Academy Award for, and I love the movie he did. Shame, God, if you like Michael Fassbender playing a sex addict in that movie, that is a grueling film to watch, but it's really well done. Widows, though, I think misses the mark. I thought it lacked urgency. I appreciate his ability to try to breathe new life into the genre. It's a female heist thriller, uh, but this isn't exactly uh, heat done for women. Uh, this is a movie in which it's um, slow developing, I would say, in terms of the plot. I thought the premise was good. As I said, I appreciate his initiative, but I thought it took too long to to get to where it needed to go. I didn't think the heist was particularly memorable. I thought the ending was predictable, and that climax to me was not satisfying. So... I think Viola Davis is always formidable, and she gives a strong performance. There was a little bit of clamor. Why did she get snubbed by the Globes? But honestly, I wasn't that concerned about it because I didn't think it was a very good movie. And I was happy Rosamund Pike got recognized for Private War, which I previously uh, reviewed on Cinephile. And Keith Law is a big fan of as well. Daniel Kaluuya, though, is excellent. If you like Get Out, he plays the villain in this movie. He's got a couple of scenes which show how sadistic he is, so props to him. Big cast as well. Duvall shows up. 
drops an N-bomb, starts saying the F-word, screaming at Colin Farrell, who plays his kid in the movie. I, I really thought Duvall came out of nowhere, as much as I love his work. Didn't care for that subplot with he and Colin Farrell. Didn't think it tied together. Uh, but some good camera work, uh, particularly from McQueen. You would expect that, being a director of his ilk. And as I said, a good lead performance from Viola Davis, but not a crime film that I think is particularly notable. And, of course, that's a genre that I have a lot of fondness for. So I'm giving Widows two Maple Leafs. Lastly, we got Vice, the one everyone's waiting for. Opening in theaters Christmas Day. So pumped up to see it. Did great with the Critics' Choice Awards. Adam McKay is up for screenplay. He's up for director. Christian Bale's up for best actor. I'm telling you, in any other year, might be Christian Bale walking away with the best actor award. He is phenomenal in this film. I don't know how much weight he put on. I'm going to say at least 50 pounds. I, maybe it was a fat suit as well because he looks demonstrably different. Knowing Christian Bale, he put that weight on. I was about real. to say, he's like, you want 80 pounds? I'll put it. How much did you put on for Raging Bull? 60? I'll put on 80. I don't care. Unrecognizable. Uh, he is the doppelganger of Dick Cheney. Shaved his eyebrows or colored his eyebrows. He went the oh, full it's nine. It's incredible. Like the, the hair already looks good, you know, the comb over, but the eyebrows, his face, and particularly his delivery. He nails Dick Cheney's speaking voice. It's always kind of this, this kind of mumble. It's almost as if he's chewing his food when he's talking. Like, not quite like a cow chewing his cud, but like he's just always kind of thinking of things. And he's just so sinister and does so in a really mild-mannered way. Like, if you just saw Dick Cheney, you would think he works at the local bank. You'd think he works in finance at night here in Hartford. They go, no, no, he's the vice president who was involved in some of the craziest things in the last 20 years of this country and involved with some wars. And in case you're thinking that, you know, maybe, just maybe, this will be the kind of film that will exculpate Dick Cheney. No, no, that's not the case. This is a film that excoriates him. Like, this is, yep, Dick Cheney was a mastermind for bringing us into wars in which the weapons of mass destruction were an absolute folly. And he was doing it because he wanted to help the economy and because he's a hawk and because he loved the idea of war. And one of the most powerful sequences of the film is when 9-11 happens. And God, this would be amazing to be a fly on the wall to actually know what Dick Cheney was doing. But the entire room, you got Condoleezza Rice in there and they're watching it all unfold and it's just in real time. And it's so well done, the voiceover. It says everybody else is thinking of fear and shock and panic and sadness. And what's Dick Cheney thinking of? What did he see? An opportunity. Like, just, just so dastardly. Like, okay, we're under attack. Watch this. And even they have focus groups explaining how you know, they have to explain to the common people, like, why are we going into this war? Like, because the audiences are unsure. The average American was unsure. What is Al-Qaeda and what does Iraq have to do with that? Like, we understand Al-Qaeda is a terrorist group, but why are we bombing Iraq? And then and then you've got these scenes with Bush. By the way, Sam Rockwell is good. I don't know how he got nominated for the movie. He's not in it very much. Although he looks like Sam Rockwell dressed up as George Bush. He's a, he's a great actor. He's got the eyebrows. And he's funny because he makes Bush look like a very simplistic, you know, just a good guy to hang out and have a couple of beers with who is easily duped by his vice president, who is brilliant and conniving. But um, Rockwell's kind of like, oh, hey, whatever you want to do. Like, you want to bomb a rock? Sure. Like, I was always pissed at that sedan, man. Like, my dad never got him. So let's go get him. Like, whatever you want. But it shows how government works. And this guy, Cheney, was, I don't want to give him credit, but he was so smart to be able to subvert the system and say, how can a vice president, who they make the case during the movie, that's normally a nothing position. That's a throwaway within government. But how did Cheney figure out a way to literally usurp President Bush and figure out a way to get these executive powers in which they could do things like Abu Ghraib and, you know, have these just crazy war prisons and torture and have that power to do so? How did he get that autonomy 
whereas normally you'd have you normally that doesn't exist or you have to get that through Congress, etc. So I thought the film did a really smart job explaining how Cheney subverted that stuff he did with email. Everyone knows about Hillary Clinton, the email servers. I got it. Well, what did Cheney do with regards to emails? How is he able to circumvent the system? And his close ally, the guy who I thought was the best supporting actor in the movie, is Steve Carell as Donald Rumsfeld, who is a very shady character going back to his time working with Nixon. Carell is a dead ringer for Rumsfeld, and he plays the role, I think, with real joy because he shows Rumsfeld as this guy who is conniving but also really seems to be relishing it. Like, Cheney is smart, but he's a bore. Like, he, he's not showing that villainy is fun. Rumsfeld actually seems to be enjoying himself. We're going to bomb the crap out of these places, and here's what we're doing. And they, they refer to W as as Bush's kid. Like, it's so derisive. Like, yeah, well, Bush's kid over there, he'll never know about this. All right, here's what we'll do. We'll do this privately here on this memo. We'll just tell Bush's kid we're doing this. I'm like, wow. Was this actually the way this was being done? Is this 10% of the truth? Is this 30% of the truth? Is it 50% of the way it happened? I don't know, but it's awfully entertaining. And the best sequence of the entire movie, it's one of my favorite sequences of the entire year, seriously, is about 40 minutes into it. And there is some good uh, detailing into his personal life, which I did not know. Had a couple DUIs when he was young, grew up in Wyoming, loves his fly fishing, hunting, okay. But when he found out his daughter was gay, Big turning point because it's like, wow, you're a Republican. And when he meets with Bush, he says to him, listen, I would love to do this position, but I know you have to run against gay marriage, particularly in the South and Midwest. But my daughter and Bush says it so callously. He's like, yeah, Rove told me she likes girls. He's like, yeah. So, um, you know, I can't, you know, I can't be part of that. He's like, yeah, it's fine. Like, whatever. Like, we, you just won't go to those rallies. Like, I'll go there and say my stuff. You go ahead. You do your thing. I'll do mine. We'll be all good. It's all right. <laughs> I'm like, Wow. But the sequence, I don't want to give it away, but it's about 40 minutes in. Dan's going to see it soon. Um, it's really, really clever. Adam McKay, for those who don't know, he did Anchorman, did The Big Short, which really was his leap towards comedy to drama. Although I still think this is a comedy. I mean, there's dramatic elements, but it's a comedy. It's very funny. It's very smart. But what he does with the audience about 40 minutes in, after Cheney finds out one of his daughters is gay, is so brilliant and so original. It was one of my favorite moments of the year. Vice, I'm giving it, I should give it four, but yeah, sure, what the hell. I was going to give it three and a half. What the hell? Let's give it four Maple Leafs. I haven't said anything negative about it, so why don't I just go ahead and give it four Maple Leafs? Ad McKay also did uh, Secession on HBO and Step Brothers. Did you mention Step that? Brothers? Step Brothers. I did not mention they also. By did the Step way, Brothers. I haven't seen it yet. Very excited to see it. Love a clever title, and this one's excellent. Yeah, Secession. You're talking about Vice. Oh, Vice. Yeah, yeah. It's a great title. <laughs> so Vice, go ahead. I'm giving it four Maple Leafs because you know what? I was kind of a Scrooge with some of these other movies. So go ahead. Four Maple Leafs for Vice. I think it's one of the best pictures of the year. Whenever we do our best pictures of the year, I will have it in my top ten. It is being justly rewarded by all the Critics' Choice Awards and by the Golden Globes. So even if you're not interested in politics, even if you're a Canadian and don't know a ton about U.S. politics, you'll still find it highly enjoyable. You may be slightly offended if you're a Republican. I should, I should say it's very slanted in one direction, but as far as what Cheney did, what he was capable of, uh, certainly a subject of scorn and derision, and this film will certainly add to that type of fuel. So to recap, Vice, I'm giving four Maple Leafs. Green Book, I'm giving three and a half Maple Leafs. The Frontrunner gets two. Widows gets two. Bohemian Rhapsody gets two and a half. And Ballad of Buster Scruggs gets one and a half Maple Leafs. Now it's time for our special guest. Robinhood is an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs, options, and cryptos, all commission-free. They strive to make financial services work for everyone, not just the wealthy. Non-intimidating way for stock market newcomers to invest for the first time with true confidence. Simple and intuitive, clear design with data presented in an easy-to-digest way. 
Honestly, this is the best way to do it. I'm telling you, Robinhood, the cost, no commission fees. Other brokerage charges up to $10 for every trade, but Robinhood doesn't charge commission fees. Trade stocks and keep all of your profits. Plus, it's easy to understand charts and market data. Place a trade in just four taps on your smartphone. Robinhood web platform also lets you view stock collections and analyst ratings of buy, hold, sell for every stock. And you can learn how to invest as you build your portfolio. I love this feature. You discover new stocks and track favorite companies with a personalized news feed. So Robinhood is giving listeners a free stock like Apple, Ford, or Sprint to help build your portfolio. Sign up at cinephile.robinhood.com. That's C-I-N-E-P-H-I-L-E.robinhood.com. All right, a real pleasure bringing one of our good friends here in Cinephile, the great Barry Jenkins. His new film is called If Beale Street Could Talk. Check it out in theaters this Friday. Before we talk about the film, we have to take a step back. I know Barry is sick of talking about it, but seriously, for those who do not know, here's a quick version of what happened. I loved Moonlight. I saw it back in November when it was released. I reached out to Barry Jenkins, who's following me on Twitter, Mutual Association. He's a big sports fan. He watches me on SportsCenter. I love Barry's film. All of a sudden, now we're at the Oscars. Moonlight's up for Best Picture. I see him on the red carpet ahead of time. Barry, I'm pulling for you. I hope this happens. Get a picture with him. Here we go. And then this moment happened, and I want to replay it now for Barry. Cinephile. The Academy Award... For best picture. You're a fucking La La Land. We lost, by the way, but, you know. Guys, guys, I'm sorry. No, there's a mistake. There's a mistake. Wait, wait, Moonlight's one best picture. Moonlight won best picture. Whoa, we have a little. Oh my goodness. This is incredible. Moonlight won best picture. drama here at the Academy Awards. This is like Steve Harvey. Remember that? This is not a joke. I'm afraid they read the wrong thing. This is not a joke. Moonlight has won Best Picture. We said earlier tonight, Ben, we were going to see a shocker. This is the shocker. Moonlight won Best Picture. Seriously, Barry, forever. This is my Al Michaels call. Do you believe believe in miracles? Okay? I'm working for the Academy. This is Facebook Live, Oscars All Access. I'm going nuts. My buddy Barry Jenkins in the craziest moment of all time. Can you believe it? Oh man, you know it's funny. I I, I heard that a couple of days afterwards, and I was like, man, Adna just lost it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, pretty pretty wild, man. I don't I don't know what it was like for you. Well, actually, I do. I, I've seen what it was like for you backstage, but uh, it was a madhouse, man. It was an absolute madhouse. I like the quote that you gave recently, the Hollywood Reporter, Barry. You said, "Listen, it's a fun thing to talk about, and years from now, hopefully, nobody will care. We can just focus on our careers." But for now. There is always going to be that moment of what happened for you and Damien Chazelle. I know you've talked about it ad nauseum, but seriously, what was going through your mind as the entire world changed? Your entire life changed in those moments. I know. You know, I was I was so confused, man. I, I had no clue what was happening. You know, sitting in the auditorium, we didn't have as much information. You know, we couldn't see the close-up on the cards. So it was just a very strange thing. I was like, okay, I'm going to walk up towards the stage because they're, they're telling me to, but um, what the hell is happening? And it wasn't until maybe like 45 minutes afterwards. My, my, I didn't realize my heart was pounding. I literally had to sit down. And I was like, I'm either going to go to like the hospital or I'm going to take a nap because this is in, intense. <laughs> um, but, you know, all's well that ends well, you know. Uh, when did you hear my call? I think when you messaged me, I think you went back to Florida State and they played my call. Is that right? Something like that. Yeah, yeah. But I think I think I'd seen it on somebody tweeted it at me. You know, because I think I think people caught on real quick that that you and I 
you know, we're, we're mutuals, as, as the kids say. So somebody <laughs> tweeted it at me. Like, have you seen this? And I was like, oh, um, I, I have not seen this, but I've seen it now. <laughs> <laughs> we, we are forever intertwined, man. I love it. You are going to be a great filmmaker for many, many more years to come. And I always be your biggest advocate. So I'm glad I got to share that moment <laughs> with you. Uh, the movie is called If Beale Street Could Talk. Listen, uh, let's go ahead and give Regina King the Oscar, okay? She's won the, the every single Critics Choice Award. The New York Film Critics, L.A. Film Critics, National Board of Review. I saw the movie at a screening in November. Before we get into the film, let's just talk about Regina King, the life force that she is. Emmy Award winner before, and I'm telling you right now, you know how great she is. She's going to win the Oscar for Supporting Actress. How great is she in this movie? I mean, that's the thing. It's uh, the life force of uh, Regina King is exactly the best way to phrase it. To phrase it. You know, she's played so many different uh, women over the course of her career. You know, these just very uh, uh, diverse, very strong, you know, and, and some very pained uh, black women. And she's taken all those experiences with her. She's such an empath that she just brings it to everything she does. And so I think when you watch her in the film, you're seeing your cousin, you're seeing your mother, you're seeing your aunt. You're just seeing so many different experiences coalesce in this one woman. I think the way you phrase the life force exactly it. I'm so happy for her. You know, we'll see what happens. You know, none of these things, as you so, so as you clearly know, you know, <laughs> n- the, the best laid plans. You know, um, but uh, but so far, I'm just really proud and very happy for her. And just much deserved. That scene where she has to, I want to say, confront, but she's trying to persuade the accuser. How many takes? How how tough was mm-hmm. it? You're so good. With tactical expertise, and we'll get to that in a second, but I think working with actors is a real strength of yours, particularly that scene. Tell me about that scene. You know, that scene was interesting for us. You know, we flew down to the Dominican Republic, and it was actually the first day of filming in the Dominican Republic. Uh, there was a, a, a hang-up with the location, and so we had to do it on the first day down there. And Emily Rios, who plays uh, the character Victoria Rogers, um, you know, it was her only day on set. And so for me, it was about actually stripping away, you know, all the mechanisms, all the, all the machinery of the process, making it really simple you know what you're watching there is just two actors in an alley and the only other person there is our cinematographer james laxton and i told them there's no focus marks you know there's no like coordinated beats you know you guys just have the floor you know and and do whatever feels right and uh we didn't shoot uh we didn't shoot for quite quite a bit it's such an intense scene you know i never want to put actors through 12 hours of that level of intensity especially knowing regina had another four days of work so i mean i can't remember how many takes but i know we filmed it over the course of maybe two hours, you know, just as the light was dying, um, we basically called rap on it. As you said, you don't want to put actors through too much, especially grueling scenes. Do you have a hard and fast rule? Do you say, like, Clint Eastwood, four takes max kind of thing and move on, or you kind of play it out? No, no, you play it out. You know, it just depends on how, how things feel. You know, there's this scene, you know, equally as intense between Brian Tyree Henry and Stefan James. It falls right in the midway point of the film where uh, Brian shows up as his character, Daniel Cardi, a friend of Fonny, Stefan James's character, and this guy's been in prison and now he's gotten out. And so they just have this conversation about what that's like. And, you know, it's all about this trauma that we assume these men leave behind them when they get out of the system, when they get out of jail. But, of course, that, that trauma travels with them. And so we did the scene, uh, you know, we shot for most of the day doing two cameras. But I think when you do that, one actor's energy is being captured by one camera. The other actor's energy is being captured by another camera. And so I realized on set editorially we were going to be cutting between this energy. And so we kicked one camera off the set. And as Stefan and Brian pass the energy back and forth, the image follows the energy. And to tell two actors, I don't even covering the scene one way all day, but I just feel like it's going to be stronger this way when you trust me. Um, and those guys trust it. And so there's no uh, one set way. That scene, I remember, we did maybe three takes, you know, of this passing the energy back and forth. And that became the bulk of the scene and the final cut. 
Stefan James, terrific actor, mainly because he's Canadian. I thought he was terrific in the movie. You know, the whole movie is about, <laughs> you know, I'm going to get a Canadian plug in there. As soon as I saw he was uh, my main man. <laughs> Listen, yeah. Barry, you rarely get these stories. If someone asked, what's if Beale Street could talk? I said, it's a love story. And they said, really? And I said, yeah, he's dealing with very serious themes of incarceration and cruelty and race relations at a certain specific time in Harlem. But it's a story of love. It's a beautiful love story between two young black people. And why don't we get more stories like that? Yeah, I don't I don't know why we don't get more stories um, like that. I can't say, you know, that's a, that's above my pay grade, I got to say. But I think. <laughs> You know, uh, people keep, keep asking me, you know, I just did an interview uh, earlier today. It's like, oh, it's just, why did you decide to follow up uh, Moonlight with a film like this? And it was like, well, as you just said, Adnan, I just haven't seen um, many stories of young black soulmates. And now that I have the opportunity to tell basically not any story I want to tell, but I have a very reasonable chance of telling the stories that I'm passionate about, um, it's up to me to fill that void. And so I wanted to tell this story. And as you said, it's really interesting. There's a balance. You know, I think Baldwin was as obsessed with love and romance and sensuality as he was with systemic injustice. And I think in this film, uh, we approach it like chemistry. You know, certain elements are denser than others. And so you don't need as much of a systemic injustice uh, to find parity between that and the romance in the film. And so I'm glad you framed it that way. I think it is truly a love story about family um, and a personal romance between a husband and wife, of course, um, but all these other different kinds of love as well. Um, and it also deals with some very real things, because that's James Baldwin. Yeah, we're talking with Barry Jenkins. This film is called If Beale Street Could Talk. It's opening in theaters this Friday. I encourage everyone to check it out. It's one of the best films of the year. How about the guts of my guy, Barry Jenkins? I couldn't believe this story. You were you were adapting this book from James Baldwin while you were also writing Moonlight, and you did not have... You did not have clearance to make the film yet. So in essence, you're adapting a book, which you don't have the rights to do. Why would you do that? <laughs> uh, you know, you know, I, I, I don't think it was gutsy. It was it was just ignorant. It was just ignorant. I just be ignorant, man. You know, I um, I, I just really wanted to write things, you know, and I always loved Mr. Baldwin's work. I, I love this book in particular. When I, when I read it, I just saw, I don't know, this is a very simple line in the book where it says, you know, Fonny is working on the wood. It's a very soft wood. He doesn't want to defile the wood. And that revealed itself to me as the audience, as the image, just circling this young man who's trying to build this image of his life, of his family. And when an image appears to you that way, you kind of just got to chase it. And so I thought, I'm just going to write this thing and, you know, and we'll see where it goes. And, you know, here we are five years later and we're talking about um, this film. And it's the first big screen English language adaptation of James Baldwin. So sometimes you got to, you, if you have a dream, you got to chase it. And, you know, like Gotha, you know, uh, boldness has genius and magic in it, you know, so, so you got to try well, right now you got the magic touch, and I hope it continues. L.A. Film Critics last night, best cinematography, best score. Let's talk about the technical expertise. You already have a gift here, Barry, for making movies, um, which it has a real, like I said, you're portraying love, and you're doing this in a very melodic kind of manner. Can you give me some window into how you can make a film feel very mellifluous and feel very poetic? How, what's the secret to how you're able to achieve that vision? I think for me, it's a, you know, I'm glad you shouted out, you know, James Laxon, the cinematographer, Nicholas Patel, who did, um, you know, our score, who were, who were both honored last night, in addition to Regina. I think it's about, you know, empowering people, empowering collaborators and trusting, and also not being afraid of space, you know. Um, I think when you read James Baldwin, um, there is a melancholic quality, you know, there's a, an almost ethereal quality to it. There is, his language is very evocative. And I think uh, the way that hits is through this, this, this space. And so I'm always telling the actors, you know, you don't have to rush. You know, there is a rhythm um, to what we're doing. And that rhythm can happen, you know, at this many BPMs or it can happen at very few BPMs. And it's all 
it's all to the good. And so I think what we try to do is just really get inside the consciousness of our main characters and then try to relay that to the audience in a way that necessarily is poetic, but I think that has a vibe. For me, it's all about the vibe, man. If Bill Street could talk is opening in theaters this Friday, we're talking with Barry Jenkins. He's also a massive sports fan. The last time we had you on Cinefile, we talked about the fact you played football. I know you recently tweeted that article, which is very cool. It said, hey, don't, don't get fooled it's by so the- embarrassing, man. <laughs> <laughs> don't, it's a, don't, don't get fooled by the glasses and the nerdy look. Barry Jenkins was a, a tough guy running back, which I hope people realize your sports pedigree. World Cup, nobody was tweeting more than you. I feel like you took a break from whatever you're doing just to watch three soccer matches a day. And of course, I know how much you love college football even the other day you were doing a junket i'm following your twitter you're tweeting about like oklahoma like the the big 12 championship game how big a sports fan are you how are you able to balance that with the world of filmmaking you know i i I grew up um the only structure i had in my life that i could depend on uh was through athletics to be honest you know that was where you know i learned the things uh, about manhood that, that that i've taken into adulthood with me you know uh i didn't have a father growing up so my coaches were in a certain way my fathers and i think understanding how to work you know, in a collaborative effort, I learned, you know, on football teams. And so I think I, uh, I try not to keep those things separate from my art because so many of the things that I do, especially how I run my film sets, you know, are taken from, you know, how I saw my coaches, the best coaches I had um, running the organizations that I was a part of, you know, particularly this high school football team at Miami Northwestern, which just won the class of uh, 6A state championship. Uh, in, in Florida, man, we were three and five at one point this season, and we ended up winning the state championship um, because uh, I think every team we lost to made the playoffs. So, um, so yeah, <laughs> Shout I think out, a lot of that man. stuff I, I, I take exactly, bro. I think a lot of that stuff, um, you know, I, I take with me. And I think there was a, a very brief moment in my life where I thought I had to separate those two, um, but I don't think that's the case at all. Um, and case in point, look at yourself, you know, going from cinephile to, you know, uh, you know, uh, choosing uh, the, the, the playoff teams, you know, it's like, you know, we, you can use the, the, the muscle, you know, in both realms. Yeah, there's no question, man. We are, uh, we're polymaths. It's a nice way of putting it. We, we have interests that are all over the map. Exactly. What would be better? Listen, you have one exactly. best picture. What would be better? If you'd actually been a running back who made the NFL, and actually had won a Super Bowl. What do you think? I know this is extrapolating here, but what do you think would be better, winning Best Picture or winning a Super Bowl? You know, it, it's interesting. I think because of the movie that we won Best Picture with, and, and to this day I still run into kids, you know, and when I say kids, I mean people who are, who are 12 to people who are 88, who uh, found such meaning um, in that movie, in Moonlight, in that character's journey. Um, but I wouldn't trade it for the world. No shade to winning the Super Bowl, but I think that what we what we're able to do in this medium, telling these stories, creating empathy through these characters, um, I wouldn't trade that for for anything. So yeah, I'm pretty happy with the path um, I chose. I would say so. Barry Jenkins, his new film is called If Beale Street Could Talk. He's obviously a very talented filmmaker, and he's also a great dude. I cannot wait to see what other films you put out there. What I what I really respect and admire about you, Barry, is it's one thing to win Best Picture, but then it feels like you're now making movies that you really want to make. You're attached to projects that you know you have the juice to get done. So keep doing that, and we'll keep supporting you, man. Thank you very much, bro. Much appreciated. When tracking the domestic dust bunny, you commonly find them hiding under wardrobes next to lost socks. Don't move too suddenly or they'll scurry off. What's utterly fascinating about the dust bunny is that although they are not actually sentient creatures, when they hear that Geico not only saves people money, but also has a 97% customer satisfaction rating, it's obvious to them you should switch. Because, yes, switching to Geico is a no-brainer. Oh, no. It's the dust bunny's only natural predator. Run along, dust bunnies. Run along.
All right, a real pleasure to bring in you. We've had some great guest reviewers in the past. Mike Benzani, of course, a fan favorite. Michael Jr., Rob Lemley. But Claire Atkins, USC film major, the pride of Nashville, my good friend who works with me, has to suffer with me on college football and college basketball. As big a movie nut as I am, she can tell you all about independent films. June Squibb loves Parker Posey, loves Ethan Hawke. We love First Reformed. Loved it. Take yep. that, Dan Stanzik. She loved it. Her fiancé, Dan Roberts, shout out to him. Check out his podcast, Yahoo Finance. You've done me a huge favor by watching Ben is Back, because there's just too many movies to watch right now. Right. So you went and saw it on your own. I did. And checked out the Julia Roberts film. So first and foremost, how nervous are you right now? Uh, on a scale of 1 to 10, I'm at about a 7. Because you're a behind-the-scenes producer, but you have definitely on-air presence. So I felt like this wouldn't be a big deal for yeah. you, but now I can sense a little bit of trepidation on your part. No, I'm we're, good. I'm we're ready. Gonna I'm we're going to tweet yeah, this for on Instagram. We're doing yeah. stories. All right. Yeah. Ben is back. Go for it. So Ben is Back is uh, a typical indie film starring Lucas Hedges, Julia Roberts, Courtney B. Vance. Uh, it is directed by Lucas's father, Peter Hedges. They never thought that they would work together. He's of the Pieces of April fame. Uh, but he thought of his son in this role and said, I couldn't do it without him. So this is a real interesting role for Julia Roberts. She really is the star of it. She plays a mother whose son is in rehab for opioid addiction. Mm -hmm. uh, and he returns the night before Christmas. And he's really supposed to be in a safe house and not supposed to be back. And she has to decide whether she wants him to stay for the night or, or take him back, thinking that he's really not ready to be out of rehab. You th It starts a little slow. You kind of don't know where it's going to go. And it, it weirdly turns into a thriller of sorts as she has to keep him out of trouble, and uh, it, it really takes quite a turn that you don't see coming. What I'm interested about is this. It feels like Academy Awards bait, and Julia Roberts ignored by the Golden Globes. I got the Critics' Choice Award nominees, which you know I actually voted on this year, and she's not up for Best Actress. We got uh, Yelitsa Aparicio from Roma, Emily Blunt, Mary Poppins Returns, Glenn Close, The Wife, Tony Collette, Hereditary, Olivia Coleman, The Favorite, which you're going to love, Lady Gaga, Star is Born, which you did love, Melissa McCarthy, Can You Ever Forgive Me, which I loved. Julia Roberts, do you think it's an award-worthy performance? I think what hurts the performance is she goes through about 15 different emotions as a mom, which mm -hmm. I think probably a lot of moms in her position can relate to. But it, it's too much. It, it's You're on this emotional roller coaster with her, and one moment she's fine, and another she she's crying and she can't deal. And it, it's it's just too much. It's, it's hard to follow. And it, it you kind of get lost in it. And, and the movie, again, like I said, turns into weirdly a thriller. So it, it becomes an enjoyable watch. But it at that point, it takes away from her performance. Mm. And uh, so, I mean, if I'm going to put this on a maple leaf scale. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to give it three out of four maple leaves. Okay. Uh, it, it, it's a, it was an enjoyable watch for me. It's a painful, I think, for anybody that has, has gone through um, knowing anyone who has drug addiction, I think uh, it's probably very relatable in that way. Mm -hmm. But it, it wasn't the type of role that I'm going to go talk to my friends about or recommend to others to see. If this isn't your genre, yeah. if you don't like a slow, indie movie, it's not going to be for you. Hedges did get nominated by the Golden Globes. That's a good sign for the movie. But I know movie we were talking about Boy Erased completely ignored, so you're going to ignore that now as well. Right. Yeah. I'm trying Russell to Crow. see I'm trying to see Lucas Hedges on Broadway right now. He's on he's in a um Kenneth Longerman play called Waverly Gallery. Uh and so I mean he's just everywhere. Yeah. So I, I'm a huge fan of him. And it's weird. It doesn't feel like much of a stretch of a role for him. Mm-hmm. 
It feels a little Manchester by the Sea. Uh, again, it's really Julia Roberts' movie. It's it's certainly not his. First Reformed, I loved it. Dan Stanzik, as he put it mildly, it's for a select audience. But you're one of those audience members that did love it. What did you like about First Reformed? I, lo- I loved it. Uh, I thought it was remarkable, this character that is in his own world and he and he's not affected by anything else around him and and really it was um Cedric the entertainer who points that out to him yeah. and uh you know it's it's creepy it, it's got a little bit of suspense but it i mean it was just it was remarkable i mean uh and i thought the turn of the environment being kind of the question that he's trying to answer for himself i thought that that was uh so smart and 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 unexpected Crisis of Conscience. Ethan Hawke, one of your favorite actors, one of your fiancé, Dan's favorite actors. The reason I like Dan more than anything, I think the first time he messaged me, he said one of my favorite movies of all time, Paul Giamatti, American Splendor. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I mean, if it's got Giamatti in it uh, or any Ethan Hawke, I mean, we're, we're, we're watching it. Uh, you know, he's still trying to convince me to watch John Adams. I, I embarrassingly haven't seen it. <laughs> that's yet. not an embarrassing one. That's a long biopic. Yeah. If you're not into U.S. history, you're like, okay, that's fine. Uh, Dan Stacey is asking for an impromptu top three Julia Roberts movie. Claire Atkins is a true cinephile, right putting on the spot, a top three impromptu Julia Roberts movie. This isn't like Claire's a Julia Roberts fan, but of course she knows her movies, so go ahead. Wow. Um, number one for me is going to be Pretty Woman. Sure. No uh, I mean, just a, a no-brainer of really, you know, true Julia Roberts style. Um, number two, I'm going to surprise you. I'm going to say stepmother. Oh, wow. God, this is a surprise. Uh, yeah, I, I, again, you can see where I, I my genres lie. Uh, I, I really enjoyed her in that role. I thought it was unexpected for her and I thought she, she did a really uh, great job with it. And three, I'm going to go with Runaway Bride. Uh, you know, it is, it is a true, <laughs> it is a true, uh, guilty pleasure of a movie and maybe it's the Richard Gere and, and you know, Sure. And me uh, and Joan Cusack. But, uh, yeah, I mean, those are, you know. Listen, that's I w- Julia. Th- those are fine selections. But I thought you were going to go August Osage County. Like, it's a true oh, indie gosh. lover, I thought, for oh, sure. I, oh. <laughs> it was. I mean. Just a gr- ooh, gr- be- better stage play, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. Oh, wonderful on, on the stage. Uh, yeah. Hated the movie. Last thought. I'm so jealous. You're going to see Brian Cranston in Network. When does this happen? Yes. Uh, next week. I'm very excited. Yeah. Uh, I, I've actually, I've thought about, it. I'm like, should I see the movie again before I see the play? And I, I know, I, I want to see what Brian Cranston does with the role. He won the Olivier for it. So I think, I think it's gonna be really special. Which is nice to see an American actor win a British award. Cause you right. always feel like the British actors are winning Oscars. Right. right. You rocked, Claire. You're, you're helping us out in two major ways. One, we definitely need a female presence. Yeah. And two, we're helping us out much with the youth of America. You're, you're a young woman here. Not even in your 30s yet. Think about how accomplished you are. Right. I mean, I would say I'm 29 going on 58. Uh, <laughs> Working with me, Galloway, Jesse. Sure. And then, you know, throw in my love of um, everything, uh, you know, BBC masterpiece. <laughs> Sign me up for BritBox. Um, uh, you know, that's and, really what, you know, I'm spending my Friday nights doing. An early prediction. Claire hasn't seen it yet, but the favorite will be your favorite movie of the year. It'll be your favorite movie of the century. Oh, you're, yeah. You're I, go I mean, it's got, it's got my name written all over it. I, I just, I can't wait. Uh, give your Instagram and Twitter handle. Uh, at Claire uh, underscore E underscore Atkins, A-T-K-I-N-S. Uh, and Twitter is probably the best place to find me, at Claire underscore Atkins, A-T-K-I-N-S. You'll also find me tagged in many Adnan Verk, uh movie <laughs> tweets. So you go, who the heck is that? You will now know. Because you haven't been responding. Because I, I guess uh, Ethan Hawke won the L.A. Film Critics Best Actor. Yeah. Immediately I tag you. I tag Dan. Passmore retweets from the Cinephile account. But 
Right, right. I always love a good um, cinephile retweet. I appreciate it. Good yeah. to see you. Thank you. Robinhood is an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs, options, and cryptos all commission-free. They strive to make financial services work for everyone, not just the wealthy. Non-intimidating way for stock market newcomers to invest for the first time with true confidence. Simple and intuitive, clear design with data presented in an easy-to-digest way. Honestly, this is the best way to do it. I'm telling you, Robinhood, the cost, no commission fees. Other brokerage charges up to $10 for every trade, but Robinhood doesn't charge commission fees. Trade stocks and keep all of your profits. Plus, it's easy to understand charts and market data. Place a trade in just four taps on your smartphone. Robinhood web platform also lets you view stock collections and analyst ratings of buy, hold, sell for every stock. And you can learn how to invest as you build your portfolio. I love this feature. You discover new stocks and track favorite companies with a personalized news feed. So Robinhood is giving listeners a free stock like Apple, Ford, or Sprint to help build your portfolio. Sign up at cinephile.robinhood.com. That's C-I-N-E-P-H-I-L-E dot Robinhood.com. A Hollywood career spanning decades. And the tales of Tinseltown are told here. Inside the Lion's Den with Ben Lyons. All right, so my boy Ben Lyons, who I might be seeing in about a month from now at the Critics' Choice Awards in Los Angeles if we play our cards right. And hopefully, fingers crossed, we'll be at the Academy Awards again for the third time. As always, he's a regular contributor, and you can check out his podcast, Lion's Den, which is an iTunes and Apple podcast. Always enjoy listening to him. I saw the movie A Private War, the director, Matthew Heineman. Ben talked to him. He also has a guest. If you like the show Narcos, he talked to a guy from Narcos recently. So check that out. This time on the latest Lions Den, he's talking to Lucas Haas. And Lucas Haas, friend of Cinephile, told us his favorite movie. Hey, guys. This is Lucas Haas. One of my favorite movies is Airplane. I think you should see it because it's probably – it's like the father of slapstick comedy. And it's just the greatest movie. I, it always makes me happy whenever it's on, so – couldn't agree more with Lucas Haas. By the way, if you're wondering his filmography, he was in Inception, played the character of Nash. He was in Witness. He was in Mars Attacks. He was in The Revenant. Uh, he's also in Widows, playing the character of David's, which I just saw. Wasn't a fan of the movie, but hey, he's great. I love Lucas Haas. Uh, Airplane, one of the best ever, man. I mean, Trey Wingum sure could go on about that movie very much so, but you can't be serious. No, surely you can't be serious. <laughs> of course I'm serious. And don't call me Shirley. He's just an average man. With an average life. And his reviews dictate that. Oh, right up my alley. First and foremost. Playing to my strengths. Dan Stanzik is. I thought it was a little, little much. Every man. Really resent that open. Cannot top the Groundhog Day. Lem, D's. A lot of people were running in here. Love that. My brother has, he hadn't seen it in a long time. Now he, he's going to watch it again after your effusive review of uh, Bill Murray Classic. What do we got this time? Good. So we got a, a platter. Of reviews for you today. You made me watch this first reformed movie. We will end with that. <laughs> we will start with the most everyman movie of the reviews that I'm about to do. Okay, good. Black Panther. Oh, finally, here we go. The 2018 <laughs> blockbuster directed by Ryan Coogler about a fictional African nation in the Marvel Cinematic Universe called Wakanda, which purports itself as a third world country, but is actually harboring vibranium, the world's strongest substance. Chadwick Boseman stars as the titular character who takes over as the new king of Wakanda after his father is assassinated. The supporting cast is excellent. Angela Bassett plays his mother, Forrest Whitaker plays his uncle, Lupita Nyong'o plays a general in the Wakandan army, and Michael B. Jordan steals the show as Killmonger, who is both a threat to the throne and to the Wakandan way of life. Black Panther is a superb superhero movie about fathers and sons choosing between isolationism and globalism, 
but I'm not sure that it does anything different. Like other superhero movies, there's a clear hero and a clear villain. There is advanced technology bordering on the supernatural that helps arm the hero. There are car chases in other countries, and there are foreign governments and undercover agents in pursuit of said weapons. Deadpool and Logan put different spins on the genre. Black Panther relies on the tried-and-true formula and executes it at a high level. That being said, Black Panther is likely going to earn an Oscar nomination for Best Picture because it tapped into the zeitgeist. There is no denying the racial politics and systematic injustices in this country, and this film spoke to the frustrations of black America. It's hard not to be angry living in a constant state of oppression, and themes about maintaining status or enacting revenge rang true. The fight for social justice continues, and the cultural relevance that Black Panther embodies gives it a big boost. The film's resonance was also aided by its soundtrack by Kendrick Lamar, which just earned seven Grammy nominations. If I was just grading it on the movie, I would give it three stars out of four, but because of the cultural relevance, I will give it three and a half. So Black Panther, you're in for it. Okay, 12 nominations in the Critics' Choice Awards. I think I agree with you. It's going to get nominated for Best Actor. If Michael B. Jordan can get in there with the Screen Actors Guild and the Oscars, maybe. And if Coogler gets nominated, obviously that would change things. It can actually win something. But definitely looking at nominated, which is huge for Marvel. Never had a, a Best Picture nominee, so that's huge. And you liked it. All right. Yeah. yeah. Ricky, what did you give it? How many Maple Leafs did you I think it was on the uh, three to three and a half. It was very, like, it, it hit that zeitgeist moment perfectly with culture and yeah. pop culture, kind of mixed everything in. I, I wasn't as high on the acting as some people were. Oh. Uh, Michael B. Jordan's acting, I was, but right. uh, for Chadwick Boseman, I thought it came off. But I, I love the female cast. I wanted, I, When I got out, I said, I want to see a whole Marvel movie with just them. I thought they were all fantastic. I, I always love Angela Bassett. She's always worth the price of admission. I'm with you on that. Go ahead. Round two here. Here we go. We've enjoyed quite a run on documentaries in 2018. RBG, Won't You Be My Neighbor, Free Solo, and Minding the Gap have connected with a larger sect of society than documentaries usually do. So, too, has Three Identical Strangers, which traffics in the hard to believe. Nice. A man showed up to a community college in 1980 and was instantly recognized by a host of co-eds, except they were calling him by a different name. Turns out that a twin brother, who he never knew existed, had attended the same school the year before. The two quickly met and had their faces printed all over the newspapers. The crazy story got even crazier when they discovered that they weren't twins. They were triplets. (laughs) A third brother emerged and the triplets became ubiquitous. There wasn't a talk show, newspaper, or magazine that they weren't on. The incredible story does turn dark as details from the past begin to trickle out. I won't say anything more than that while some... People find most of the actions taken to be unconscionable. I understand them. Some of the reenactments are a little rough, but the astonishing details of the story make the documentary worth watching for all. I will give that three out of four stars. Nice. I'm surprised you didn't like it more. You liked it. You weren't crazy about it. I understand. I I, I don't want to give away any spoilers, but we can talk off air. Sure. I do get it. There is a larger... When you deal with real people, it gets weird. It gets... We'll, we'll talk later. And finally... Yeah. First Reform, the antithesis of an everyman film. (laughs) Ethan Hawke plays a 46-year-old reverend at a small church called First Reformed, which is more like a glorified gift shop and pales in comparison to the nearby Abundant Life Church, which is run by Cedric the Entertainer in a rare, dramatic role. Fantastic. Think of First Reformed like Average Joe's and Abundant Life like Globo Jim from Dodgeball. 
The film, which was written and directed by Paul Schrader, has shades of Taxi Driver, nice. which Schrader also wrote, nice. in that it's about the deterioration of the main character. Hawk's character is deteriorating both physically, his body is failing him, he's coughing, puking, and peeing blood, and emotionally. The mental decline starts after a pregnant parishioner, played by Amanda Seyfried? Yes. Asks him to talk to her doomsayer environmental activist husband. Hawk's condition worsens and his drinking intensifies as he prepares for First Reform's 250th reconsecration. His downward spiral appears to be building to an explosive conclusion, but we get a strange dream sequence followed by an ambiguous ending that may or may not also have involved another dream sequence. Mm. The film explores existential religious themes that will confuse most and thrill very few. <laughs> what a damning indictment of First Reform. How many Maple Leafs are you giving it? Two. Oh, so that, that's a, that's an average movie. Yeah. The, the I wouldn't thing, recommend it to anyone. That's the, that's the most damning part of it. Is, is there one person that goes, hey, like, someone's going to hear me and go, hey, I didn't love First Reform. It's one of his favorite movies of the year. And they're going to ask you and you're going to go, I get why he liked it. But if you're asking me if I think you will like it, I'm going to say no. Correct. I don't know anybody. I don't know anybody who I'd be like, oh, you'll really like that. <laughs> what about Passport? No chance he likes it. <laughs> Ricky, don't see it. I have to see it. Are you surprised that Claire loved it? Nah, USC Film School. Right. Yeah. So it's a little yeah. more highbrow, as we would say. It's, it's, yeah. It is the antithesis of an everyman type movie. We'll discuss the ending off here. All right. Lastly, we listen, great news here for the holidays, okay? We got gifts, all right? We got cinephile hats for you. In the past, Dan's done three of these quizzes. Much like uh, you know, Goldilocks and the Three Bears. One was too hard, one was too simple, one was in the right in the middle. So this time I request one that's fairly easy because I want to see people get these hats and start pumping them out there. So cinephile hats, we'll give them the first ten, first five, ten. First ten correct responses. You got to tweet us, cinephile ESPN, C-I-N-E-P-H-I-L-E ESPN. Dan Donald, the quiz, what do we got? Okay, it's a five-question quiz, and for many of you that don't know, I watch Jeopardy mostly every night. Yeah, you're 7 to 7.30, get ready for bed, wake up super early. It's your early, favorite show of all time. About. I mean, yes. most viewed show certainly over the years. What would, be, what would be your favorite show of all time? I, I mean, it's hard to judge like a game show and a drama or hey, a comedy. Give me a drama kind of game. I mean, I love right Seinfeld, that kind of stuff. But So, so I watch Jeopardy mostly right. every night. Okay. 7 o'clock. So I wrote these as if they were Jeopardy questions. <laughs> Question one. This famous actor, writer, producer, director, and citizen was likely misquoted as saying, they'll love me when I'm dead. Nice. Question two. <laughs> this commenter roasted Rick with a midday rebuke, calling him a bag of hot air. <laughs> hey, if you're an avid listener cinephile, this was a memorable moment of 2018. Question three. Steve Levy recently gave his stamp of approval on doing upwards of 25 takes because of the residual checks, including the most recent one he got for this amount. Great, great question. Question four. Ben Lyons met his future wife on the French Riviera <laughs> thanks to a film about Russians made by this genius director. Love it. Genius director even. Okay, very good. Good guess we had. Yep. And finally... Adnan's one critique of a recent film was not that it was flat, it's that the spotlight wasn't on this actor enough. <laughs> Dedicated fans of Cinephile will know who that actor is. Very good. That's a quiz. First 10 responses. You get a free Cinephile hat. Put it on the gram. Put it on your Twitter. Let's get it done. And credit to Michael Stein, who won the Nick Nolte book. That's right. This is my autographed. It's not autographed by Nick. It's autographed by me. 
It's an autobiography of Nick Nolte, and he won it. The question was, Nick Nolte's voice sounds like what? According to Jeff Bevere, Toronto Star Film Creek, the answer is like a talking ashtray. Several people tweeted in other stuff. If you, if you look at other reviews that have said this about Nolte, but talking ashtray was correct. So the official cinephile hats in the quiz. And we got to shout out Wes. I don't know if it's pronounced Evitz or Evitz, but he's a super fan of cinephile. He tweets the show all the time. He tweets me all the time. Susan Emery's a huge fan, too. She tweets all the time. So thanks, as always, for uh, supporting us. Passmore, you were noticeably silent this time. I think that the iTunes have gotten to you. You didn't, you didn't do it in defense of. You're, you're, you're sensitive after people are criticizing you. No, we had a full slate today. You had seven reviews. We that have, uh, we had Barry Jenkins come on through. You know, Dan's got this awesome three movie everyman. Like I'm, <laughs> hey man, I'm, I'm cool going silently into the good night that is 2018. Supporting actor knowing when to step aside. So the next podcast will be next week at some point and we'll be reviewing such films as Mary Poppins Returns. Definitely going to see Roma, Alfonso Cuarón's movie. That'll be available on Netflix December 14th. Speaking of December 14th, Barry Jenkins' film at Beale Street Could Talk is available in theaters this Friday. I'll also try to get around to The Hate You Give, Blind Spotting, and A Simple Favor. I don't know if I'm going to like that one. Blake Lively and uh, your girl Anna Kendrick just got that screener as well. So thanks so much for always checking us out here on Cinephile. Until then, I'll see you at the movies. Don't miss out on the next episode of Cinephile. Subscribe to the Adnan Burke Movie Podcast by clicking the Listen tab in the ESPN app.